Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the Futurati podcast. We are joined today by Galen Wolf-Polly, who is the CEO of Urbit. Um, and we are going to talk about the alternative to the internet that his company is building. Galen, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Um, I have to immediately clarify something, which is that I'm not actually the CEO of Urbit. I'm the CEO of Tlon. We work oh, okay. on Urbit, but Urbit is open source and owned by lots of different people. But we can get into that. Yeah, we, uh, we probably should because actually I wasn't totally clear about that. Um, yeah, it's so, kind of confusing. So let's uh, let, let's get in the, into that a, a little further into the show. First of all, I, I'm sort of curious as to what's motivating the development of Urbit. So on the Urbit website, you wrote that we think the internet can't be saved. The way things are going, megacorps will always control our apps and services because we can no longer run them ourselves. And some of the notes you sent over, you said that today's software is toy-like. None of the tools work together. We have no meaningful control over it. So I, I guess I just need some convincing that the current set of tools we have is that bad. It's so bad that we need to abandon ship altogether and go over to Urbit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't need to abandon ship and go over to Urbit today because Urbit is definitely still young. Uh, but I think that Urbit or something like Urbit is kind of almost an inevitability at this point. Um, so I can certainly concede that, I mean, you know, we're having this conversation over Zoom. Zoom is like magic to someone even living 10 years ago, right? Most of our communication tools outside of email, Slack, Discord, Asana, whatever, they are actually pretty impressive just in terms of the features that they provide. Um, my criticism of them comes from um, probably looking at this stuff with the mind of an architect, where when I look at the way that the physical world is organized, the physical world is kind of like this emergent place, right? Like everybody organizes their own home to their liking, communities figure out how to make their neighborhoods work for them. And the people who live in a particular place, right? Like figure out how to make that place reflect how they want it to work. And in the digital world, that's just, you know, individuals don't have much agency and even lar slightly larger organizations don't have a lot of agency. I mean. I don't know who like Salesforce maybe uses Slack, right? And maybe there's like 20,000 people who work at Salesforce, but it's probably still even, you know, difficult for them to get a feature through at a large corporation, right? They can't actually make changes to their software. So my sort of fundamental gripe or criticism is just that that is a flawed model uh, and that it's not, it's actually flawed even by the standards of the original, uh, I think a lot of people who worked on the internet or even worked on general purpose computing at the outset. Um, computers are meant to be these sort of wonderfully open-ended tools. And when they're open-ended, we can do all kinds of cool and unusual things with them in very casual, straightforward ways. This is easy to see if you look at the early days of the PC. But the way that we use software today is super monolithic. It's it's like uh, it's almost hard to find an equivalent in the physical world, right? So you can think of like maybe like planned communities where you 
can't leave or something like that, or like <laughs> Vegas, I guess. I, I, I mean, it really is. And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but not really. Right. Like if I want to, if I know you, let's say we only know each other on Facebook. Um, like we somehow like became friends on Facebook. Now we send messages back and forth on Facebook. There's no practical way for us to like, uh, you know, to break out of that ecosystem is actually relatively difficult or make changes about the way that we communicate, the way we share, share data or share favorite photos or video or whatever it might be. Um, most of these tools and platforms are just super monolithic. They're completely closed. Um, and that just doesn't make sense, I would say. And it's almost like a missed opportunity ultimately. Um, and I can get into how that might be, or maybe exam- there's some sort of early examples of how I think, uh, you could go beyond what we have now. You can either look back at the past and you can look, I think, to like overseas for the most part um, at what people are doing uh, in, in, in China and elsewhere. But, so, so a yeah. proje- project like this is just massive in scale. Um, yeah. it, it, it's kind of funny because <clears throat> the name Urbit doesn't, it's not like Colossus or the big heavyweight name or something. It sounds like a little bitty uh, robot guy that's going to, come to your rescue or something. But um, so Urbit, um, it, it has to have an entry point. Um, it, yeah. it has to have something that, um, a place where people can kind of identify with it and and kind of, uh, I mean, it's like you need something like an email app or, or some sort of texting app or some social network or something that is a starting point that people can relate to. Um, have uh, how much have you thought about that? And uh, what do you think that that entry point looks like? Yeah, that's, well, that's basically what we've been working on uh, over the past maybe 18 months or so. Um, so the first sort of like, you know, easy to touch, easy to use thing for Urbit is what we call landscape. So yeah, there's too many individual components in this project, uh, all of which are named in friendly you know, disarmingly friendly ways. Uh, so Urbit, think of Urbit as just, Urbit is just a piece of software. It runs on top of any, um, any piece of hardware that is like, looks like a Unix machine with an internet connection. So this happens to be what most of our data centers are full of. That's intentional, of course. And also your laptop, your phone, whatever. Like it's a piece of software that basically treats our existing infrastructure like a, just like a foundation. And so this is more or less the way that the original internet treated the phone system, right? They're like, all right, we've already got all these wires. We've got, we're going to transfer something much more, much richer, much like higher bandwidth than voice over these wires. Urbit's sort of the same thing. It's like, we're going to have this whole computing protocol that runs over this existing foundation. Um, That as a piece of technology, of course, yes, is not like something that people can touch. So landscape, which is an interface to that system, is a simple system by which you bring together a group of people to chat, share links, and write. Basically, like think of it like group chat on steroids. So we're all stuck at home trying to stay in touch with one another, whether it's as a business or as a group of friends. And generally, I find, uh, even with groups of friends, we're often like juggling a few different applications. You're like talking on Discord, you have some notes in Notion or something like that, and switching back and forth is no fun. So the main sort of advantage that Landscape has, well, I mean, there's no ads, it's completely private to you and your friends, and there's no sort of like algorithm sorting what you see, and you can bring together a bunch of stuff in one place. So simple, calm, straightforward computing uh, 
there's certainly a lot more that you could do eventually with a system as ambitious as Urbit, but landscape is a great start. It's also the thing that we really need. So we use landscape from day to day, both as like the Urbit community and as the company to keep in touch, uh, coordinate, and uh, I mean, yeah, figure out what we're going to work on and what we're going to do. Yeah. So given that we have this problem, how is it that Urbit proposes to solve it? So what makes Urbit different from just cobbling together a bunch of other open source tools or advocating for people making proprietary software easier to modify or edit? Why not just go that route? Why build something entirely new? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a super important question. So Urbit is um, a combination of like Ur and Bit, right? So Ur being a reference to the root of urban or like the original city or sort of like original bit. And the aspiration of the software package is to basically make the simplest possible general purpose computer um, that can run over a network. And the theory is more or less that everything that we use to do what I think of as like industrial scale computing. So when everybody shares, you know, whatever, Instagram, WhatsApp, it doesn't matter. Everyone using that app goes to one server or one, you know, big data center that is pretending to be one server. And when they do that, the software running on that server has to be industrial scale, right? It has to handle this like enormous amount of traffic, has to be super low latency for millions and millions of people to use all at once. And in general, that software stack is just insanely complicated. So the whole sort of like uh, lineage of existing, even lots of open source software for handling you know, one-to-many or industrial scale computing is just totally different than this like one-to-one, you know, one little data, one computer for one person uh, approach that Urbit takes. And the, the basic idea is that there's no way that that sort of whole, you know, ecosystem of stuff uh, from, you know, Kubernetes all the way through to Node or whatever it might be, this whole stack that we put on top of Unix servers to make conventional web applications, our approach is, or like our take is like, that whole software stack is insanely complicated and it's basically for one-to-many computing. And instead you could replace it with something that's vastly simpler, that's designed specifically just for an individual to compute with that thing directly. Urbit's like 50,000 lines of code compared to, I think WordPress is like half a million. I mean, to do anything in the centralized fashion is really, really complicated. I think people just don't see this difference. Um, and our and the thinking is that Urbit should, over time, actually just get simpler and simpler. That it should, you know, sort of ossify into like a single protocol uh, that you never change ever. Um, so I guess like you know, just a completely different attitude. It's also, by the way, not it's we're just we're copying in some ways. So, you know, this is similar to what happened when people started building personal computers, right? So at one time, everybody went to the computer center at their college and shared a mainframe. And eventually someone figured out how to get, you know, an Altair on your desk. And the Altair was not as powerful as a mainframe, but the fact that you had it on your desk and you could do whatever you wanted with it uh, was a hell of a lot more fun uh, than sharing this a giant piece of like industrial machinery. So Urbit is sort of built in that, in that spirit, basically. So would it be fair to say that you're trying to wipe the slate clean of all this legacy code and create a software version of what the original personal computers promised to be? 
Yeah, definitely. But on the network, right? So the PC was just a you know, standalone thing. And we figured out how to wire them all together at first using LAN cables and that kind of like, uh, you know, grew and grew into this global network that we have today. But we never thought about like, what should a personal computer be when most of the information that it gets comes over the wire? So Urbit at its most, you know, the, the sort of the base layer, the virtual machine of Urbit is effectively a fixed frozen function. We never change that function. You just basically, you know, data comes in, it takes the state that you already have, and it computes some new state. And the basic thought there, without getting too technical, is that this sort of platonic ideal of a networked computer is something that just takes in data over the wire from somewhere, and then computes something new, and then maybe sends a sends some data back. Whether that data is coming over a Wi-Fi connection or a cell connection, or whether it's coming from a keyboard or a wire, it doesn't matter. But originally, computers weren't really conceived of in this way, right? They weren't sort of network native. So Urbit, I mean, that's really just one example. There are a bunch of things that Urbit does to be like built such that it is, you know, like uh, default online um, in a way that I think, yeah, most people have not sort of conceived of personal computing systems in this way. So, so last week we had um, an expert on quantum computing. Um, how, how does, uh, Urbit work with, if we start moving into the quantum computing world, um, how, how does that, uh, does that factor into your thinking so far? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a question that I'm totally not qualified to answer. To be honest, we have someone on our team who, uh, is, what is he, he has a math background and is, knows a lot about quantum computing. Um, realistically, I don't know enough about quantum computing to give you a, a very good answer. I mean, we think about it mostly, the only times it's really come up is has to do with basically like, you know, Urbit, um, it's really important that you own your Urbit cryptographically and we do a lot to, you know, encrypt all of our networking and so on. So quantum resistance in terms of like, you want really good forward secrecy, right? If I've encrypted everything I've ever done on my Urbit, uh, with a key that now can be broken by quantum computers, um, that's a problem. So we try and uh, we monitor that research pretty closely because it does matter, right? If some day down the line, quantum computers can easily crack all of the encryption that we have today, that, that will be an issue. Um, how quantum computers might affect like day-to-day -day computation on Urbit, I have no idea. I have trouble understanding. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm reasonably technical, uh, but I find quantum computing so confusing. Honestly, like um, every time I've tried to sort of walk through the fundamentals, I get a little bit lost. <laughs> it's it's a confusing subject. That's yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So 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 what's a qubit? Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I like that's, that's an old joke. So <laughs> so th there are two things you've said, and I don't understand how they work together. On the one hand, you noted that when somebody shares an Instagram page or a photo on Facebook or something like that, everybody piles onto a server. That server contains a lot of really complicated, long-standing code that's extremely difficult to work with. And it yeah. seems to me like that's a, an artifact of path dependence as they solve one problem and then they solve the next problem. Things become locked in. Technical debt is hard to pay off. And eventually you just have this frozen in place. So that, that's number one. Number two is you said you hope over time Urbit will become simpler and simpler until it eventually ossifies into a single protocol that is just so easy anybody can use it to do anything they want to. So I'm curious as to how you're going to maintain that dynamic over time. So if I become, if I build the Urbit version of Facebook and everybody wants to use it, or if I become a, like a world famous Urbit DJ and people are constantly 
tuning into my live streams or something like that. How is it that the, the software stack does not progressively become more complicated because we're facing the exact same problems that Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all these other people faced? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So let's see the, this is a great question because it also forced me to, uh, it's reasonable to talk about these things without getting too technical, but I think I, when I'm talking about them, usually we're talking about them in a, in a totally technical context. Um, every today, I mean, like, let's see, I'm trying to think of exact like one-to-one comparisons. So messaging is a good example. So let's think about like, you know, we have even in encrypted messaging, we've got uh, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram. I'm sure there are others. There are plenty of other ones, but let's, those are the sort of flagship ones. So each each of those services has to run serv- servers somewhere. Like there are computers with internet connections somewhere, right? That like when you open Signal and you send a message, it's you know encrypted on your client or whatever and sent to Signal server. Same with all of these other ones, and they have separate servers. So, in order for that server to receive the message and then forward it to the recipient, um, each of those services has to. Well, they don't necessarily have to, but what they end up doing is that they implement every piece of that problem on like completely independently. Right. So there is no protocol like universal protocol by which, say, you do peer discovery, meaning you figure out, you know, where the person's phone is and how to route the packet to them or how you do uh, data storage. And um, meaning that even, you know, the user, I can't download my signal data and move it to some other server because my signal data and my WhatsApp data are completely different data formats. They've implemented their own way of doing data storage. Um, So the hope in the urban world is basically to take you know, everything except that sort of thin application layer and turn them into protocols. So like file storage, networking, uh, application model. I can go through the sort of components of the operating system, but you get the basic idea, right? We're sort of like, look at the, in a way you can think about, one naive way to think about urban is like, look at the existing stack that runs applications and like squint your eyes and try and take the ideal versions of each of those components and then make those, you know, run on every node independently, and and sort of like uh, create, you know, well, it, you know, p- part hope and part sort of like uh, uh, development process. Aim both of those things at, you know, refine these components into their ideal, uh, into their ideal version over time, right? So like make the make a file system that can be just like the universal file system for the whole network, um, rather than having everyone implement their own. Does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. And I'm curious as to whether or not you have any thoughts as to why those protocols didn't universalize between the different applications. Because it's not like there aren't yeah. lots of protocols. We have HTTP, yeah. we've got FTP, TCP, IP. There's a bunch of them. So why yeah. did it stop at a certain layer such that now yeah. we need Urbit to yeah. handle the whole stack? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't have a simple answer, I mean, to, to the answer, the most straightforward version of why, right? Like, is there some historical event? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's because people weren't thinking about it this way, right? Like, I mean, even dynamic web applications were almost like a surprise, you know? I mean, there's a big difference between, you know, HTTP as it was originally imagined, the internet that we all, you know, are shuttling data around, like you're using HTTP all the time, right? To like look at webs, open any browser tab. The way that was originally imagined was that like the endpoint of your HTTP connection was someone else's computer. 
it wasn't a, you know, a, a server somewhere. And so you were browsing. I mean, the reason that I see slashes in my address bar, right, is because I was assuming to be navigating the file system. But of course, the address in your address bar is totally not reflective of, of, of something going on in someone else's computer. And the reason for that is just because people weren't thinking about how do I maintain sort of like the personal computer as the endpoint. People were thinking about how do I, you know, build successful businesses that, you know, capitalize on what people can do with connected computers. And in some of those cases, uh, I think you've people have found, you know, incredible monopolies that uh, that that make sense. And in some cases, they found incredible monopolies that ultimately don't really make sense and don't actually uh, accomplish what people want them to accomplish. And they will either very quickly or very slowly probably be eroded just because they seem, I think they're, uh, they're just sort of like, in a way, like they're very, bes the very bespoke stack of most like communication services um, is just kind of like a local maximum, right? It's like, it's the best that we can do to connect each other to one another right now. But in order to make that work as a business, you have to make so many compromises on behalf of the user that if there were a better solution uh, that, you know, that stack, that whole technical model, that whole business model would actually just go away. Um, at least that's more or less how we look at it. So it's kind of like um, the same reason that Great Britain has a 50 hertz electrical system and we have a 60. Um, maybe not really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I know the history of that. Well, so that yeah. They're each independently solving these problems and not right. necessarily right. imagining how it's going to evolve. Well, in the exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. So if, if we get into the, the economics of all this, um, yeah. there, there's a whole lot of economic sets driving the current Internet. Yeah. And so um, how, how is Urbit going to be sustainable? I mean, what's, what's the, yeah. the flow of money uh, that's, yeah. that you're going to be depending on in the future to, to kind of grow the services and grow the operation? Yeah. So the, you know, I think that the basic idea is like, if the internet had funded its own growth by selling IP addresses, then it could have actually been a lot more like Urbit. So the way that we, um, so, so we basically do more or less that, which is, you know, to boot a Urbit node, you need an address. Each address is a finite piece of cryptographic property. Um, there are only so many of them. Each Urbit address is sort of like a name in a foreign language, like Ravmel Ropdile, which is also a number. You can route packets to it. it. Sounds like a login name or a username, but they're deliberately pseudonymous, right? They don't leak bits about you. I don't have like Galen like at Galen or whatever, uh, I have a name that, you know, doesn't necessarily tell anyone anything about me. Anyway, those addresses cost money. Um, and there's a scheme for distributing them that decentralizes, you know, who no one really, no one owns all of them, uh, including that's part of why I make the distinction about like we're Plon, we're not actually Urbit. Urbit is this collective of people who own the address space. So um, I'm not sure if it's, we can, maybe come back to the scheme by which they're distributed. But to answer your question just about the economic incentive, the idea is basically that as Urbit becomes more useful, that address space becomes more valuable, right? Because people actually want to buy it and put it to use. And as it, you know, the more usable it becomes, the more valuable those addresses are. Um, and so the thinking is, and I mean, this is true for us as a business even today, we can sell address space and fund the development of the platform uh, in ways that serve the people who, who want to buy those addresses. So it's a much more direct sort of in a way like sort of direct consumer relationship, right? Versus instead, uh, I don't know, Google sells ads 
And so I get Gmail for free. You have this kind of weird, like two pronged, I don't know, it's like a confusing relationship, right? In an Urbit world, there may be many companies like Klon that build things on top of Urbit, provide Urbit services. We also provide Urbit hosting uh, as of recently. And we just have a direct you know, consumer relationship with you, right? We sell you an address. We sell you the ability to, uh, to access this thing easily. So it's like an internet farmer's market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Yeah. It's like an internet farmer's market where, yeah, like, but everyone, a farmer's market where say everybody is selling tomatoes. It's like tomatoes is the only allowable thing at this farmer's market, but you could have many different farmers and they all differentiate themselves in, 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 uh, in, in specific ways. So it, it occurs to me that one of the, the routes to legitimizing Urbit would be to get one of the major corporations to, to buy in and start using it. Um, so if, if as an example, Apple computers or, um, IBM or Microsoft or somebody just decided, even if it was a small internal project, it would give some level of credibility to Urbit. Uh, have you had those discussions with, uh, some of the bigger players? A little bit. Um, I think our, you know, we've, we've spent most of our time really just focused on like organic growth, right? Like grow Urbit as a community and um, as a kind of self-sustaining, uh, yeah, collective really. Um, and in that regard, it's actually going reasonably well. Um, there's definitely, you know, at least a few thousand people who are on the network regularly. And that, that seems to be growing as we make it easier and easier to use. Urbit is historically pretty difficult to use. I mean, you're having to like boot this thing in the command line on your own versus only as of like, I don't know, two weeks ago that we can actually just let you sign up and boot a node for you. Um, so this is still really, really early. I think that what you're describing is something I've assumed would start to happen maybe a year from now or two years from now, like as the platform matures and stabilizes it makes a lot of sense, I think, for larger players to just use Urbit as a piece of infrastructure, right? So it's like you sign up with this service. Uh, they just, you, if you have an Urbit, you just log in with your existing Urbit ID and uh, the service talks directly to your Urbit. And if you don't have one, you can like buy one when you sign up and, it, and, and the same thing is true. So you can imagine, maybe not so much for like Apple, but say like something like Substack or even an email provider or whatever, you know, you just have this like an Urbit behind the scenes thing rather than log into Urbit and Urbit is the one place that you sort of communicate and collaborate with everybody. So the other, the other approach would be to, to start putting together courses uh, to teach people how to use Urbit and then do yep. a, do a certification of sorts uh, for the, um, I don't know, the gold standard of uh, Urbit user. Yeah. Um, have you, have you gone down that path at all? Yeah, we've done a little bit of that. Um, the Yeah, they're kind of two different ways of playing with Urbit, right? You can play with Urbit as a naive user who just, you know, wants to be free of the feed or whatever you want to, like, live in a different digital world. And within, as a, you know, basically a naive user, you don't want to do anything technical. Um, so that was sort of what I was talking about before. For technical people who are interested in, like, developing on the platform and playing with it, um, the whole thing is open source and on GitHub. We attract a lot of people just that way because it's a pretty novel piece of system software. We do also run – we used to run, like, Talon used to run, and now communities, community members run this thing called Hooniversity. The program has its own programming language called Hoon. Um, so there's Hooniversity, which is, like, I think they run every six weeks or so, um, which is like a, yeah, basically a MOOC that you can come in and like learn how to program for the platform. Um, 
which is seems like a lot of fun and 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 the community itself is pretty pretty welcoming like it's it's a strange computing environment and sort of a new world and i think everyone in general is there purely for fun at this point which is which is part of what makes it makes it great so we've had a couple of questions about your economic model and what the incentives might be for a big company to use urbit as infrastructure but what is it that would make me want to use it so yeah. What are the what are the use cases for an application or a community that would make me say, you know what, Urbit is absolutely the best choice, such that I'm going to figure out how to do this and boot it myself and set it up and pay for this namespace, and that's how we're going to organize everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say there are well, so in the long run of landscape, this interface we've been building is probably similar to what like what in almost everyone in China uses as WeChat. So in China you know, instead of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you know, this mishmash of services is sort of like one multi-purpose service called WeChat, where I can send you a message, send you some money, uh, book an appointment with my doctor, uh, book a reservation at a restaurant, check in at the restaurant, pay the bill. You know, you kind of like do everything within this one ecosystem. Uh, and the greatest part about that to me as basically as, you know, someone with a design background is that from an interface standpoint, it's totally unified. It feels really, really good to use. Of course, WeChat is also a, you know, sort of unbelievable surveillance tool and comes with all of the, you know, benefits or, uh, or ills of it being, you know, basically an arm of the state. Without getting into whether or not that's good or bad, it's sort of like, as a tool, it seems good. And I would prefer it to be something where I actually, it was completely secure and private to me and was equally multi-purpose, right? The desktop operating system feels good because it's so um, it's so unified, right? You have this like totally unified environment where I do stuff. The idea is to make landscape similarly like a multi-purpose thing where I can communicate and collaborate with people all in one place instead of having to reach out to all these different tools. That'll take some time. So in the interim, I think of like really two or three different specific use cases that are you know, like near term, reasonably near term, even today, um, things that people either are doing or could do soon. So Urbit has really good, you know, security, durability, and, um, and sort of extensibility guarantees, right? Like today I can chat, share links, write documents. So you can do a lot with, basically I bring a group together, I can create channels in that group of either one of those three types, and you can do a lot with that. So we see a lot of people being like, let's, uh, you know, start a reading group. And we really don't want to do this in public and we don't want to juggle a lot of services. And we really, you know, we're, we care a lot about security and privacy. We're sort of like ready to exit the internet as it exists. That's like a very common, you know, drag a few friends onto Urbit to, uh, I don't know, start reading Gothic literature or whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, we, we also fit into this, um, you know, there's, Urbit is a cryptographic asset, and we overlap a lot with the world of, of, of other cryptographic assets. So for crypto companies and people who are interested in security and privacy, um, as a company, I think of Urbit as actually is pretty good tooling. Like, it's nice to use from day to day. Uh, it, interface simplicity is really nice. Having everything in one place is really nice. And so you've seen a few other, like, teams of collaborators come on and, and sort of, like, bring their workflow into, into landscape. Um, the other thing that people do, uh, which is more for fun than anything else, but I like seeing it sort of ramping up, is uh, there are a bunch of like sort of ARM or like Raspberry Pi enthusiasts who like 
love installing Urban on Raspberry Pi in their house. Um, and actually, you know, then you have this physical thing you can hold um, that is your own personal server accessible from anywhere uh, that uh, I think, I don't know, suits the aesthetic of that community, which I totally appreciate. It's really, it is kind of amazing, right? You have this tiny thing that's like three inches by two inches by three inches or whatever um, that is, can be not, you know, not your whole digital life today, but it's something you definitely like rely on and, and build social connections on. Uh, I feel like there's a longer, um, I'm, I'm waiting for someone to turn that into the full sort of like digital prepper kit or something like that, because I feel like Urbit is like well suited to the prepper community, but that's an idea I just had yesterday. So I, I can't say it's very fleshed out. Well, that, that, that's actually a pretty good segue <laughs> into what I was, I was going to ask you about. So do you have any concerns over some of the more nefarious uses that would be possible with yeah. a technology like this. So it, it sounds, it, it's not equivalent to the dark web or a blockchain, but it, there's clearly a lot of overlap there. And there's also a lot of justified concern over people, you know, taking out hits on their ex-wives or something uh, over the yeah. dark web or a tour server or something like that. So is, is there any guarantee that Urbit will not be used in that way? Or are you just kind of accepting that things like that may happen? Um, things like that may happen, but Urbit is definitely not designed to make it easy. Um, I tend to think of it basically like, you know, Urbit in many ways, I think like most well-designed privacy tools, um, is designed to reflect sort of like the kind of privacy you get that you, that you basically expect in everyday life, right? When I have a conversation, you know, I, I invite people over to my house for dinner and we have a conversation. I expect that like if someone says something crazy, so the kind of content moderation case, someone's flying off the rails, I have to deal with them. You know, like I'm not, someone else is not going to, you know, step in and tell them what is okay to say or to not say. It's like, we're sharing a space together. We got to figure it out. Um, and I think similarly, like, you know, sure, like people get up to all kinds of, um, uh, you know, illegal or dangerous things. Urban is not designed to make that easier, um, but it's designed to give you sort of like the same level of privacy you expect when you uh, connect with people in the physical world. I think that there are some risks to that, certainly, um, but I think that sort of community moderation is uh, even sort of like historically reasonably successful by comparison to this kind of like dragnet surveillance world that we have ended up living in. Um, so I think that like there's a world in which you can have basically strong encryption and good personal privacy, uh, but you can still live in a perfectly, you know, sort of like well-ordered and uh, not chaotic uh, or falling apart world. I mean, to be, you know, to be seen. It's like, it's a strange comparison, right? We live in a world of basically, you know, very obvious, um, you know, sur surveillance capitalism is, uh, is, I think has been talked about enough that I don't have to like sort of describe it again, right? Um, and so in some ways I think of it like, we'd like to at least see the difference, right? You wanna see the difference between, okay, well, what are the trade-offs between being li living in a world where every company is looking at everything I do all of the time, including probably my own government versus, well, I have the same privacy among my digital friends that I do among the people in the real world. Do we actually see like an explosion of, 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 of bad actors? I doubt it seriously, but I tend to be pretty optimistic about human nature. So, so that leads uh, to, a, to an obvious question. You say there's roughly a couple thousand people a day that are on orbit. Um, yeah. What are some of the adjectives to describe these people? Are they mostly programmers? Um, yeah. I'm guessing that's not a place you go to, 
to find a good date for Saturday night. Um, we get asked about the first uh, or a dating app a lot. So right, right. Or a date. Or a date. <laughs> but maybe that's because they are mostly programmers. <laughs> uh, it's somewhat mixed. I mean, the inter- one of the interesting things about Urban is there's no real discoverability. So I don't really know. I mean, even to your prior question too, like I don't actually really know what's going on in the network and there's no way for me to know. Um, the people who hang out in our, you know, our community channels are mostly about urban itself. So yes, people there are talking about building things and like the culture of what's it like to try and, you know, build something that is, you know, whatever, like, like urban um, and, and kind of the meta conversation around this sort of other internet. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know, someone was telling me the other day that there's a, a, a big coalition of kids in there talking about um, how to solve the San Francisco housing crisis by building airships so wow. that I feel like is a good example of the kinds of conversations <laughs> that go on. Urban. I mean, urban feels like a young social network and that's deliberate. I mean, my thinking is basically like if urban in fact is supposed to be a system on the scale of the internet itself, you know, some of the most productive pieces of the early internet were like Usenet, bulletin boards, things like that. And so that's kind of like, that's what the culture of urban feels like today for sure. Now are, are there, are there competitors? Are there other people trying to do the same thing you are? And um, uh, in other countries, maybe. Uh, and are you keeping track of who those people are and their efforts and what they're doing? Kind of, and yeah, kind of. Um, so yeah, like I said, we overlap with the sort of like Bitcoin and Ethereum worlds to some extent. Um, you can think of certainly like Urbit should have payments integration at some point, so people can actually just do business over this network. And uh, but those are definitely different. I think of those being more cooperative. So I know a lot of people in those worlds, but we work together to some extent um, to try and make Urbit sort of more integrated with digital payment systems. Um, As far as actual like better community, I mean, there is really nothing like Urbit. Um, I used to try and answer this question in a more, uh, I don't know, like trying to reach for things that were similar to what we're doing. There aren't that many things that are very close and definitely not technically. So there are certainly privacy tools and, and privacy protecting communication tools. Um, but the major difference in almost every case is that they're not aimed at like general purpose computing uh, at all. Um, so you have things that are just focused on messaging or just focused on publishing, a lot of things that um, call out to a blockchain uh, in some way. And so therefore they're usually not private or they rely on the client to, or the person to keep their own keys. Um, so no, Urbit is pretty unique in this way. There are a few things, and yeah, I definitely keep track of them, uh, but not really. Um, it's kind of a bad answer. I think I've always wanted to have a better answer to that, but it, <laughs> honest answer is no. <laughs> okay. So lots of social commentators have noted that we're living in an age of increasing fractiousness and atomism, I guess for lack of a better word, where communities are you know, far shallower, they're mostly based on Facebook and they kind of dissolve into meme sharing or virtue signaling or, or what have you. It, it kind of sounds like Urbit is trying to make digital communities more human. And you alluded to community moderation and community standards as a way of sort of policing behavior and instilling in people the, the correct standards of behavior. So is it fair to say that that's kind of a long-term goal is to provide the infrastructure for that to happen? It's sort of a cozier digital age? 
Definitely a cozier digital age. Uh, that, yes, um, is certainly what we're after. So, yeah, I tend to think that basically, like, you know, historically, our, you know, as a, like, humanity's most important tool, maybe, full stop, might be communities and community organization, right? We need each other and rely on each other. It's almost like, I feel like people often make the, the, claim that say like language is the most important tool that we've ever invented right but perhaps language is kind of downstream from community right like in order for us to coordinate we need to be able to talk to each other it's just like such a uh, sort of like deeply embedded part of who we are and how we operate and so i think that for the most part the sort of default public uh internet as it exists today um because it is I mean, basically any platform that makes money by selling ads is therefore also incentivized to just keep you there as long as possible, right? They make money if you're there as much as you, you know, for, for the longest possible time. And there's just no way that that is good for community cohesion, full stop. Uh, it's, I mean, and, and you know, that like other people have talked about this ad nauseum at this point, so I don't really need to talk about it too much, I feel like. Um, I was just listening to Tristan Harris earlier. Someone sent me something. And I was like, oh, yeah, these guys already – I used to feel like I needed to, to, to like have a canonical argument on this front. And I'm like, oh, these guys handled it. So you can go listen to the Center for Humane Tech you know, talk about <clears throat> how algorithms have basically made the world completely crazy. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. I might not feel that way quite as strongly as they do, but I think it's, 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 there's, there's, there's something there. Um, and, but I'm much more concerned with the other side of it, which is basically like, well, what do people actually want? And I think what people want and rely on, um, you know, before we used computers to connect with one another all the time was basically communities smaller than, certainly smaller than like 128 people and probably smaller than 32 people and probably smaller than even 12 people. You know, there's something that goes on when you have a few, only a few people in the room uh, that's nothing like when you're basically communicating in public. But if you look at the tools that we have for building those kinds of communities digitally, they're not that good. And they're just, just cause there aren't that many incentives to really focus on, um, uh, on that whole area of, you know, I mean, just like that whole problem set. Um, so, you know, I can send messages back and forth over iMessage or whatever, and yeah, I can make video calls, but, uh, just by and large, it feels like an area that is like underserved. And so, yeah, my basic, um, uh, you know, one of my basic convictions is just that this is like the future of how we communicate digitally has to reflect, you know, how we lived maybe even 100 or 500 years ago, which was so much more organized around our tribe, our family, the people around us. Um, and we're, I think we're much better suited to negotiate conflict in those, uh, in, in those size groups to generate new ideas and to sort of like figure out how to live together. And that's the potential for what computers should be doing for us, right? Like they should be tools by which we better connect with one another to figure out, you know, how we're going to sort of be here in the world. I'm not totally sure that Twitter is um, doing all that much for us in that regard. Right. No, uh, definitely not. Yeah. So I agree that the incentive structures are wildly skewed towards keeping people on the platform. And if it's clickbait headlines and, and, you know, fractiousness that gets us there, then that's fine. And the algorithms will just generate as much of that as possible or, or work to spread it far and wide. And I agree that the current existing tool set is not very good for building online communities, but I, I do worry 
that there's actually a deeper reason that people do not interface as well online. And that's just because there is so much information that's passed between people who occupy the same physical space over and over and over again that cannot be captured online. So even if Urbit were a hundred X improvement over all of these other platforms and with all their problems, how confident are you that it will be able to solve this deeper problem such that authentic digitally native communities will spring up on it? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I don't know, but I know that, okay, I think, oh, no, that's not true. I do know. (laughs) (laughs) And here's why I know. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't, I can't speak unilaterally for everybody, but as someone who basically grew up on the internet before the internet was this massive um, global platform, um, I definitely like formed relationships with people who are very different from me, who are very far away from me, um, uh, who thought about very different things than me. You just using text. Um, and those communities were impactful on the way that I thought and the way that I, you know, sort of shaped my image of the world and what I worked on and, and, and so on and so forth in ways that were super impactful, uh, and super valuable. But the way that those communities were formed were just, mostly almost like whimsical, like I stumbled into them uh, because the internet was small and there just weren't that many people there. Um, and so I've, and I've seen that, you, you know, you talk to people who are on Usenet or who are on sort of like private forums and so on. And many people have had that experience. The problem is that most people, ha- or I guess my argument would be that most people have not had that experience. So I'm not arguing that you can, you can never replace, you know, what we get even from being on, you know, on a video call or, you know, being in person, perfect. You got a video call, yeah, it's like 60% or less, you know, uh, and it kind of goes down from there. But there are things about this kind of lower bandwidth form of communication, <clears throat> whether it's just in text or in image form or in video form or all these, I mean, even in video games, right? People form deeply. I think I've talked to a few different people who like married someone that they met in Ultima online or something like that. I mean, there are, I think there's a potential because of, because it's this one sort of like cross section out of your personality or of your way of being of building interesting relationships that way. But uh, yeah, I just don't think we've explored what's possible there because the internet has kind of taken this like hard left turn into, um, you know, engagement focused social media, basically. Yeah. So uh, now how um, the, the question I'm going to ask has to do with how scalable urban is, but as we, you're you're envisioning that we're going to be making this transition that we're going to people are going to start leaving the traditional internet and moving to uh to urbit and it's it's going to be um kind of a mass exodus i'm assuming that at some point it's it's going to ramp up and you're going to need um to accommodate 100 million extra users this month uh at least that's the part of the dream um and so how, how scalable is Urbit? And then how do you uh, envision this relationship with the traditional internet as, as it evolves into something else? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's no, um, you know, one maybe really naive way to think about Urbit would be, let's say that um, right now, you know, if I'm, if I'm a, Google employee of a certain, I don't know, security clearance, surely I can just, you know, search across every Google user's data to try and find a particular thing because all of that data is effectively stored in one database. 
But one thing you could do is just have Google say, you know what, instead of having this be like one system, we're going to effectively containerize it. And everybody gets their own little G suite that runs as its own little virtual machine that they could run on their Raspberry Pi or they can run in their home or we'll run it for them. Um, and in that case, you know, you'd effectively sort of urbitize, uh, you know, the, like you take Google and turn it into an OS, right? So <clears throat> if you think about it that way, like, well, I mean, the scaling problems of basically how do you get a bunch of different computers to talk to each other uh, in a you know low latency way is pretty much a solved problem. It isn't solved unilaterally within the system like Urbit as it exists today, um, but it's certainly not like theoretically unsolvable. I mean, Urbit still sends packets over UDP um, and runs inside of an interpreter that's written in C and Haskell, like uh, basically can, can be figured out. Um, a big part of how Urbit scales is definitely through hosting, which is part of what we just started offering two weeks ago or so. So the thing is that most people don't want to run their own nodes. Um, that most people probably want someone else to run a node for them, and they want that node to be in a data center somewhere so that it's super available and is never going to go away. Um, that In that case, I, I sort of imagine the very likely Urbit future in which you know Urbit is successful is that probably 80% of people are hosted because I mean, maybe more, 90, 95% of people, it's just like, and Urbit is almost just like any other service. It's a service that you pay for. The nice thing is that you can exit at any time. You can leave your host behind, just download your data. You can run it yourself. Um, or you can even unilaterally exit. If you're like worried about your host, you can just change your keys because you're the person who will actually hold the keys. So anyway, in that case, when they have a bunch of Urbit nodes running in the cloud, um, there aren't any real, I mean, you couldn't today onboard 100 million people onto Urbit. Um, you could probably scale it up by a few thousand people a day. Um, but certainly, you know, you, our approach has always been just if, so long as you go step by step, you know, you can, in fact, solve, you know, very difficult technical problems as long as you don't kind of like get ahead of yourself. So the idea is basically throttle your scaling as much as you can um, and continue to improve the quality of your infrastructure over time. I think that if we follow that path, so Urbit at first is a social network, then it's like an extensible social network you can ship software to, then it's basically kind of like a, you know, it's a foundation for many, many different things that happen inside of a, of a very big ecosystem. Um, that's a arc that can play out over many, many years. Um, and, you know, for a long, like a, a very large part of that, of that trajectory, Basically, Urb is almost just like an app. It's an app that exists alongside other things on the internet. You access it through a browser. You access it through an app on your phone. Maybe then you access it through a desktop app. Maybe then you boot into it on one computer or two. So Urbit doesn't replace the internet wholesale um, right away or even in the, you know, not for a very, very long time. Um, we're ambitious, but we're also practical, I think. <laughs> All right. So... You mentioned that you have a design background and you told us that you studied architecture. Some of the things you said at the beginning of this conversation about how we can modify our homes and the ways in which we interact with our lived spaces reminded me of Christopher Alexander and his pattern language. So I'm just wondering how that has informed your work at Tlon and with Urbit and you know whether or not you've got any plans for how that will play out in Urbit's expansion. Yeah, so Alexander is probably the single biggest influence on my thinking 
in general. Um, although I went to an architecture school where no one really knew anything about Christopher Alexander, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, or uh, I'm still have plenty of friends from school and I'm always like, somehow there's, there's a big East coast, but I went to school in the East coast and there's like, Christopher Alexander is just not a uh, known character um, in, in East coast architecture world. Uh, so there's this incredible talk that Alexander gave at the like object oriented. It's, it has a funny acronym. It's like Oopsla to, to a bunch of programmers, like object oriented software, LA. I don't know. Anyway. Programmers um, LA. Yeah. Oh yeah. Programmers liberation army. <laughs> anyway. uh, That's kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> I can share, I can find dig the link up, but anyway, I think that, look, the, the built world is is finished, right? I mean, really, like buildings are built. very difficult. They're done, you know, and they're very difficult to change. So they're hard to get finished and they're really hard to change. So when, you know, um, I think many of Christopher Alexander's thinking uh, or much of his thinking about basically the composability of things um, and uh, how you might be able to build systems that are uh, vastly composable in a very casual way by ordinary people without making them sort of like ugly or garish, um, or not, not that you're looking for like aesthetic perfection, but that it can be done casually towards, you know, to the end, to like great end. Um, that I think is um, much more likely to be realized in software than it is in the physical world, um, which is really why I've ended up working on the kinds of stuff that I work on. I mean, to me, I, this is the same, this is, if you, for any architecture students listening, I'm like, just don't just forget it. It's, it takes way too long to build a building and there's no, it's pointless. If you want to get, if you want to basically realize architectural thinking really quickly, you should build software because not only can you, you know, execute, uh, do you have to think in this extremely um, uh, broad sense, right? You have to think about all these different possible options, even I think in some ways more broadly than you would when you're building a building. You also then hand that over to someone as a tool where they're going to go and do all these different things with it and, you know, uh, recompose all the components that you gave to them. So when I think about, you know, so Urban Today, use it to chat and share links and write and just build, you know, it's a little weird social network. Ideally, all of those components, yeah, are composable and um, you can take them apart and put them back together. And in the same way that people found a lot of um, joy and excitement in playing with the early PCs, I feel like that's that same level of like casual um, enthusiasm is something that you should be able to find with a networked computer. And the way that you're going to realize that is by, yeah, like taking seriously the kinds of things that Alexander was obsessed with, uh, but I think was never fully going to realize in the built world. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is something, something novel. You're trying to blaze a new trail. And so it, uh, this, this question I think is, is quite fitting so that, you know, the person that invented the first clock, how did he know what time it was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that the per the person who built the first clock uh, was just looking up at the sky to figure out what time it was. Uh, 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 that actually may be relevant in this case too. Uh, so, 
Okay, so your answer is you got to spend more time looking at the sky. Okay, good. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is that one of the things that people like the most about landscape is the clock. Uh, we and, and actually, like, the duration, I, I find, like, measuring time and um, kind of, like, helping people locate themselves in time to be, like, sort of an – is so important. I mean, I find it really important as well. Um, but anyway, the urbic clock basically measures duration of the day, like daylight, and not uh, hours, right? So, uh, yeah, if you're going to blaze a new trail, you need to have a new – you need to first locate yourself, uh, you know, in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay i think that's a great note to end on galen thanks so much for coming and talking about urbit with us yeah my pleasure yeah well, um, this is terrific yeah, all right well have a great evening and uh well uh, thank you very much yeah my pleasure yeah thanks guys good to meet you talk to you soon absolutely thanks. see ya this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com Thank <laughs> you.